5. His labors toward banishing servility and hypocrisy from the character of his countrymen. The Lake District of Central Luzon is one of the most historic regions in the islands. The Mayai probably of the 12th century Chinese geographer. Here was the scene of the earliest Spanish missionary activity. On the south shore is Calamba, birthplace of Dr. Rizal, with Pinan, the residence of his father's ancestors, to the northwest, and on the north shore the land to which reference is made above. Today this same region at the north bears the name of Rizal province in his honor. The other recollection of Rizal's youth is of his first reading lesson. He did not know Spanish and made bad work of the story of the foolish butterfly, which his mother had selected, stumbling over the words and grouping them without regard to the sense. Finally Mrs. Rizal took the book from her son and read it herself, translating the tale into the familiar Tagalog used in their home. The moral is supposed to be obedience and the young butterfly was burned and died because it disregarded the parental warning not to venture too close to the alluring flame. The reading lesson was in the evening and by the light of a coconut oil lamp, and some moths were very appropriately fluttering about its cheerful blaze. The little boy watched them as his mother read and he missed the moral, for as the insects singed their wings and fluttered to their death in the flame he forgot their disobedience and found no warning in it for him. Rather he envied their fate and considered that the light was so fine a thing that it was worth dying for. Thus early did the notion that there are things worth more than life enter his head, though he could not foresee that he was to be himself a martyr and that the day of his death would before long be commemorated in his country to recall to his countrymen lessons as important to their national existence as his mother's precept was for his childish welfare. When he was for the mystery of life sending had been brought home to him by the death of a favorite little sister, and he shed the first tears of real sorrow, for until then he had only wept as children do when disappointed in getting their own way. It was the first of many griefs, but he quickly realized that life is a constant struggle and he learned to meet disappointments and sorrows with the tears in the heart and a smile on the lips, as he once advised a nephew to do. At seven Jose made his first real journey. The family went to Annapolo with the host of pilgrims who in May visit the mountain shrine of Our Lady of Peace and Safe Travel. In the early Spanish days in Mexico she was the special patroness of voyages to America. Especially while the galleon trade lasted, the statue was brought to Annapolo in 1672. A print of the Virgin, a souvenir of this pilgrimage, was, according to the custom of those times, pasted inside Jose's wooden chest when he left home for school. Later on it was preserved in an album and went with him in all his travels. Afterwards it faced Baudiro's splendid conception of the Christ Mother, as one who had herself thus suffered, consoling another mother grieving over the loss of a son. Many years afterwards Dr. Rizal was charged with having fallen away from religion, but he seems really rather to have experienced a deepening of the religious spirit which made the essentials of charity and kindness more important in his eyes than forms and ceremonies. Yet Rizal practiced those forms prescribed for the individual even when debarred from church privileges. The lad doubtless got his idea of distinguishing between the sign and the substance from a well-worn book of explanations of the church ritual and symbolism intended for the use of parish priests. It was found in his library, with Mrs. Rizal's name on the flyleaf. Much did he owe his mother, and his grateful recognition appears in his appreciative portrayal of maternal affection in his novels. His parents were both religious, but in a different way. The father's religion was manifested in his charities, he used to keep on hand a fund, of which his wife had no account, 
for contributions to the necessitous and loans to the irresponsible. Mrs. Risal attended to the business affairs and was more careful in her handling of money, though quite as charitably disposed. Her early training in Santa Rosa had taught her the habit of frequent prayer and she began early in the morning and continued till late in the evening, with frequent attendance in the church. Mr. Risal did not forget his church duties, but was far from being so assiduous in his practice of them, and the discussions in the home frequently turned on the comparative value of words and deeds, discussions that were often given a humorous twist by the husband when he contrasted his wife's liberality in prayers with her more careful dispensing of money aid. Not many homes in Calamba were so well posted on events of the outside world and the children constantly heard discussions of questions which other households either ignored or treated rather reservedly, for espionage was rampant even then in the islands. Mrs. Risal's literary training had given her an acquaintance with the better Spanish writers which benefited her children, she told them the classic tales in style adapted to their childish comprehension, so that when they grew older they found that many noted authors were old acquaintances. The Bible, too, played a large part in the home. Mrs. Risal's copy was a Spanish translation of the Latin Vulgate, the version authorized by her church but not common in the islands then. Risal's frequent references to biblical personages and incidents are not paralleled in the writings of any contemporary Filipino author. The frequent visitors to their home, the church, civil and military authorities, who found the spacious Risal mansion a convenient resting place on their way to the health resort at Los Banos, brought something of the city and a something not found by many residents even there, to the people of this village household. Oftentimes the house was filled, and the family would not turn away a guest of less rank for the sake of one of higher distinction, though that in social practice was frequently followed by persons who forgot their self-respect in toadying to rank. Little Jose did not know Spanish very well, so far as conversational usage was concerned. But his mother tried to impress on him the beauty of the Spanish poets and encouraged him in essays at rhyming which finally grew into quite respectable poetical compositions. One of these was a drama in Tagalog which so pleased a municipal captain of the neighboring village of Pite, who happened to hear it while on a visit to Calamba, that the youthful author was paid two pesos for the production. This was as much money as a field laborer in those days would have earned in half a month, although the family did not need the coin. The incident impressed them with the desirability of cultivating the boy's talent. Jose was nine years old when he was sent to study in Binan. His master there, Justiniano Aquino Cruz, was of the old school and Rizal has left a record of some of his maxims, such as, spare the rod and spoil the child, the leper enters with blood, and other similar indications of his heroic treatment of the unfortunates under his care. However, if he was a strict disciplinarian, Master Justiniano was also a conscientious instructor, and the boy had been only a few months under his care when the pupil was told that he knew as much as his master, and had better go to Manila to school. Truthful Jose repeated this conversation without the modification which modesty might have suggested, and his father responded rather vigorously to the idea and it was intimated that in the father's childhood pupils were not accustomed to say that they knew as much as their teachers. However, Master Justiniano corroborated the child's statement, so that preparations for Jose's going to Manila began to be made. This was in the Christmas vacation of 1871. Pinon had been a valuable experience for young Rizal. There he had met a host of relatives and from them heard much of the past of his father's family. His maternal grandfather's great house was there, 
now inhabited by his mother's half-brother, a most interesting personage, this uncle, Jose Alberto, had been educated in British India, spending eleven years in a Calcutta missionary school, this was the result of an acquaintance which his father had made with an English naval officer who visited the Philippines about 1820, the author of An Englishman's Visit to the Philippines, Lorenzo Alberto, the grandfather, himself spoke English and had English associations, he had also liberal ideas and preferred the system under which the Philippines were represented in the Cortes and were treated not as a colony but as part of the homeland and its people were considered Spaniards. The Great Binan Bridge had been built under Lorenzo Alberto's supervision, and for services to the Spanish nation during the expedition to Cochin China probably liberal contributions of money he had been granted the title of Knight of the American Order of Isabel the Catholic but by the time this recognition reached him he had died, and the patent was made out to his son, an episode well known in the village its chief event, if one might judge from the conversation of the inhabitants was a visit which a governor of Hong Kong had made there when he was a guest in the home of Alberto, many were the tales told of this distinguished Englishman, who was Sir John Boring, the notable polyglot and translator into English of poetry in practically every one of the dialects of Europe, his achievements along this line had put him second or third among the linguists of the century. He was also interested in history, and mentioned in his Binan visit that the Hacklet Society, of which he was a director, was then preparing to publish an exceedingly interesting account of the early Philippines that did more justice to its inhabitants than the regular Spanish historians. Here we saw first heard of Morga, the historian, whose book he in after years made accessible to his countrymen. A desire to know other languages than his own also possessed him and he was eager to rival the achievements of Sir John Boring. In his book entitled, A Visit to the Philippine Islands, which was translated into Spanish by Mr. José del Pan, a liberal editor of Manila, Sir John Boring gives the following account of his visit to Rizal's uncle, we reached Binan before sunset. First we passed between files of youths, then of maidens, and through a triumphal arch we reached the handsome dwelling of a rich mestizo whom we found decorated with a Spanish order, which had been granted to his father before him. He spoke English, having been educated at Calcutta, and his house a very large one gave abundant evidence that he had not studied in vain the arts of domestic civilization. The furniture, the beds, the table, the cookery, were all in good taste, and the obvious sincerity of the kind reception added to its agreeableness. Great crowds were gathered together in the square which fronts the house of Don José Alberto. The Philippines had just had a liberal governor, de la Torte, but even during this period of apparent liberalness there existed a confidential government order directing that all letters from Filipinos suspected of progressive ideas were to be opened in the post. This violation of the mails furnished the list of those who later suffered in the convenient insurrection of 72, an agrarian trouble. The old disagreement between landlords and tenants, had culminated in an active outbreak which the government was unable to put down, and so it made terms by which, among other things, the leader of the insurrection was established as chief of a new civil guard for the purpose of keeping order. Here again was another preparation for 72, for at that time the agreement was forgotten and the officer suffered punishment, in spite of the immunity he had been promised. Religious troubles, too were arrived. The Jesuits had returned from exile shortly before, and were restricted to teaching work in those parishes in the missionary district where collections were few and danger was great. 
to make room for those whom they displaced the better parishes in the more thickly settled regions were taken from Filipino priests and turned over to members of the religious orders. Naturally there was discontent. A confidential communication from the secular archbishop, Dr. Martinez, shows that he considered the Filipinos had ground for complaint, for he states that if the Filipinos were under a non-Catholic government like that of England they would receive fairer treatment than they were getting from their Spanish company religionaries, and warns the home government that trouble will inevitably result if the discrimination against the natives of the country is continued. The Jesuit method of education in their newly established Otneo Municipal was a change from that in the former schools. It treated the Filipino as a Spaniard and made no distinctions between the races in the school dormitory. In the older institutions of Manila the Spanish students lived in the Spanish way and spoke their own language. But Filipinos were required to talk Latin, sleep on floor mats and eat with their hands from low tables. These Filipino customs obtained in the hamlets but did not appeal to city lads who had become used to Spanish ways in their own homes and objected to departing from them in school. The disaffection thus created was among the educated class, who were best fitted to be leaders of their people in any dangerous insurrection against the government. However, a change had to take place to meet the Jesuit competition, and in the rearrangement Filipino professors were given a larger share in the management of the schools. Notable among these was Father Burgos. He had earned his doctor's degree in two separate courses, was among the best educated in the capital and by far the most public-spirited and valiant of the Filipino priests. He enlisted the interest of many of the older Filipino clergy and through their contributions subsidized a paper, El Eco Filipino, which spoke from the Filipino standpoint and answered the reflections which were the stock and trade of the conservative organ. For the reactionaries had an abusive journal just as they had had in 1821 and were to have in the later days. Such were the conditions when Jose Rizal got ready to leave home for school in Manila, a departure which was delayed by the misfortunes of his mother, his only, and elder, brother, Pashano, had been a student in San Jose College in Manila for some years, and had regularly failed in passing his examinations because of his outspokenness against the evils of the country. Pashano was a great favorite with Dr. Burgos, in whose home he lived and for whom he acted as messenger and go-between in the delicate negotiations of the propaganda which the doctor was carrying on. In February of 72 all the dreams of a brighter and freer Philippines were crushed out in that enormous injustice which made the mutiny of a few soldiers and arsenal employees in Cavite the excuse for deporting, imprisoning, and even shooting those whose correspondence, opened during the previous year had shown them to be discontented with the backward conditions in the Philippines. Dr. Burgos, just as he had been nominated to a higher post in the church, was the chief victim. Father Gomez, an old man, noted for charity, was another, and the third was Father Zamora, a reference in a letter of his to Potter, which was his way of saying money, was distorted into a dangerous significance, in spite of the fact that the letter was merely an invitation to a gambling game. The trial was a farce. The informer was Garote just when he was on the point of complaining that he was not receiving the pardon and payment which he had been promised for his services in convicting the others. The whole affair had an ugly look, and the way it was hushed up did not add to the confidence of the people in the justice of the proceedings. The islands were then placed under military law and remained so for many years. Father Burgos's dying advice to Filipinos was for them to be educated abroad preferably outside of Spain, but if they could do no better, 
at least go to the peninsula. He urged that through education only could progress be hoped for. In one of his speeches he had warned the Spanish government that continued oppressive measures would drive the Filipinos from their allegiance and make them wish to become subjects of a freer power, suggesting England, whose possessions surrounded the islands. Dr. Burgos's idea of England as a hope for the Philippines was borne out by the interest which the British newspapers of Hong Kong took in Philippine affairs. They gave accounts of the troubles and picked flaws in the garbled reports which the officials sent abroad. Some zealous but unthinking reactionary at this time conceived the idea of publishing a book somewhat similar to that which had been gotten out against the constitution of Cadiz. Captain Juan was its name, it was in catechism form and told of an old municipal captain who deserved to be honored because he was so submissively subservient to all constituted authority. He tries to distinguish between different kinds of liberty, and the especial attention which he devotes to America shows how live a topic the great republic was at that time in the islands. This interest is explained by the fact that an American company had just then received a grant of the northern part of Borneo, later British North Borneo, for a trading company. It was believed that the United States had designs on the archipelago because of treaties which had been negotiated with the Sultan of Sulu and certain American commercial interests in the Far East, which were then rather important. Americans, too, had become known in the Philippines through a soldier of fortune who had helped out the Chinese government in suppressing the rebellion in the neighborhood of Shanghai. General F.T. Ward, from Massachusetts, organized an army of deserters from European ships but their lack of discipline made them undesirable soldiers, and so he disbanded the force. He then gathered a regiment of Manila men, as the Filipinos usually found as quartermasters on all ships sailing in the east were then called. With the aid of some other Americans these troops were disciplined and drilled into such efficiency that the men came to have the title among the Chinese of the ever-victorious army, because of the almost unbroken series of successes which they had experienced. A partial explanation possibly, of their fighting so well is that they were paid only when they won. The high praise given the Filipinos at this time was in contrast to the disparagement made of their efforts in Indochina, where in reality they had done the fighting rather than their Spanish officers. When a Spaniard in the Philippines quoted of the Filipino their customary saying, Poor soldier, were sacristan, the Filipinos dared make no open reply but they consoled themselves with remembering the flattering comments of General Ward and the favorable opinion of Archbishop Martinez. References to Filipino military capacity were banned by the censors and the Archbishop's communication had been confidential, but both became known, for despotisms drive its victims to stealth into methods which would not be considered credible under freer conditions. Chapter V. Jagger's Prophecy Resolve's first home in Manila was in an Ipa house with Manuel Hidalgo later to be his brother-in-law, in Colispilid, a street named for a former Filipino priest who had risen to be bishop and governor-general. This spot is now marked with a tablet which gives the date of his coming as the latter part of February, 1872. Rizal's own recollections speak of June as being the date of the formal beginning of his studies in Manila. First he went to San Juan de Letran and took an examination in the catechism. Then he went back to Calambra and in July passed into the Otmio possibly because of the more favorable conditions under which the pupils were admitted, receiving credit for work in arithmetic, which in the other school, it is said, he would have had to restudy. This perhaps accounts for the credit shown in the scholastic year 1871-72, until his fourth year Rizal was an extern, 
as those residing outside of the school dormitory were then called, the Atmia was very popular and so great was the eagerness to enter it that the waiting list was long and two or three years delay was not at all uncommon. There is a little uncertainty about this period, some writers have gone so far as to give recollections of childhood incidents of which Rizal was the hero while he lived in the house of Dr. Burgos, but the family deny that he was ever in this home, and say that he has been confused with his brother Pashano. The greatest influence upon Rizal during this period was the sense of Spanish judicial injustice in the legal persecutions of his mother, who, though innocent, for two years was treated as a criminal and held in prison. Much of the story is not necessary for this narrative, but the mother's troubles had their beginning in the attempted revenge of a lieutenant of the civil guard, one of a body of Spaniards who were no credit to the mother country and whom Rizal never lost opportunity in his writings of painting in their true colors. This official had been in the habit of having his horse Federal at the Mercado home when he visited their town from his station in Binan. But once there was a scarcity of fodder and Mr. Mercado insisted that his own stock was entitled to care before he could extend hospitality to strangers. This the official bitterly resented. His opportunity for revenge soon came, and was not overlooked. A disagreement between Jose Alberto, the mother's brother in Binan, and his wife, also his cousin to whom he had been married when they were both quite young, led to sensational charges which a discreet officer would have investigated and would assuredly have then realized to be unfounded. Instead the lieutenant accepted the most ridiculous statements, brought charges of attempted murder against Alberto and his sister, Mrs. Rizal, and evidently figured that he would be able to extort money from the rich man and gratify his revenge at the same time. Now comes a disgruntled judge who had not received the attention at the Mercado home which he thought his dignity demanded. Out of revenge he ordered Mrs. Rizal to be conducted at once to the provincial prison, not in the usual way by boat, but, to cause her greater annoyance, afoot around the lake. It was a long journey from Calamba to Santa Cruz, and the first evening the guard and his prisoner came to a village where there was a festival in progress. Mrs. Rizal was well known and was welcomed in the home of one of the prominent families. The festivities were at their height when the judge, who had been on horseback and so had reached the town earlier, heard that the prisoner, instead of being in the village Calabus, was a guest of honor and apparently not suffering the annoyance to which he had intended to subject her. He strode to the house, and, not content to knock, broke in the door, splintered his cane on the poor constable's head, and then exhausted himself beating the owner of the house. These proceedings were revealed in a charge of prejudice which Mrs. Rizal's lawyers urged against the judge who at the same time was the one who decided the case and also the prosecutor. The Supreme Court agreed that her contention was correct and directed that she be discharged from custody. To this order the judge paid due respect and ordered her release. But he said that the accusation of unfairness against him was contempt of court and gave her a longer sentence under this charge than the previous one from which she had just been absolved. After some delay the Supreme Court heard of this affair and decided that the judge was right. But, because Mrs. Rizal had been longer in prison awaiting trial than the sentence, they dated back her imprisonment, and again ordered her release. Here the record gets a little confused because it is concerned with a story that her brother had 16,000 pesos concealed in his cell, and everybody from the Supreme Court down, seemed interested in trying to locate the money, while the officials were looking for his sack of gold, 
Alberto gave a power of attorney to an over-indulgent lawyer who worded his authority so that it gave him the right to do everything which his principal himself could have done, personally, legally and ecclesiastically, from some source outside, but not from the brother. The attorney heard that Mrs. Rizal had had money belonging to Alberto, for in the extensive sugar purchasing business which she carried on she handled large sums and frequently borrowed as much as 5,000 pesos from this brother. Anxious to get his hands on money, he instituted a charge of theft against her. Under his power of attorney and acting in the name of his principal, Mrs. Rizal's attorney demurred to such a charge being made without the man who had lent the money being at all consulted, and held that a power of attorney did not warrant such an action. In time the intelligent Supreme Court heard this case and decided that it should go to trial, but later, when the attorney, acting for his principal, wanted to testify for him under the power of attorney, they seem to have reached their limit, for they disapproved of that proposal. Anyone who cares to know just how ridiculous and inconsistent the judicial system of the Philippines then was would do well to try to unravel the mixed details of the half-dozen charges, ranging from cruelty through theft to murder which were made against Mrs. Rizal without a shadow of evidence. One case was trumped up as soon as another was finished, and possibly the affair would have dragged on till the end of the Spanish administration had not her little daughter danced before the Governor-General once when he was traveling through the country, won his approval, and when he asked what favor he could do for her, presented a petition for her mother's release. In this way, which recalls the customs of primitive nations, Mrs. Rizal finally was enabled to return to her home. Dr. Rizal tells us that it was then that he first began to lose confidence in mankind. A story of a school companion, that when Rizal recalled this incident the red came into his eyes, probably has about the same foundation as the frequent stories of his weeping with emotion upon other people's shoulders when advised of momentous changes in his life. Dr. Rizal did not have these Spanish ways and the narrators are merely speaking of what other Spaniards would have done, for self-restraint and freedom from exhibitions of emotion were among his most prominent characteristics. Sometime during Rizal's early years of school came his first success in painting. It was the occasion of a festival in Calamba, just at the last moment an important banner was accidentally damaged and there was not time to send to Manila for another. A hasty consultation was held among the village authorities and one councilman suggested that Jose Rizal had shown considerable skill with the brush and possibly he could paint something that would pass. The gobernador Silao proceeded to the lad's home and explained the need. Rizal promptly went to work, under the official's direction, and speedily produced a painting which the delighted municipal executive declared was better than the expensive banner bought in Manila. The achievement was explained to all the participants in the festival and young Jose was the hero of the occasion. During intervals of school work Rizal found time to continue his modeling in clay which he procured from the brickyard of a cousin at San Pedro Macapi. Rizal's uncle, Jose Alberto, had played a considerable part in his political education. He was influential with the regency in Spain, which succeeded Queen Isabel when that sovereign became too malodorous to be longer tolerated, and he was the personal friend of the regent, General Prim, whose motto, more liberal today than yesterday more liberal tomorrow than today. He was fond of quoting. He was present in Madrid at the time of General Prim's assassination and often told of how this wise patriot, recognizing the unpreparedness of the Spanish people for a republic, opposed the efforts for what would, he knew, result in as disastrous a failure as had been France's first effort. 
and how he lost his life through his desire to follow the safer course of proceeding gradually through the preparatory stage of a constitutional monarchy. Alberta was made by him a knight of the order of Carlos II, and, after Prim's death, was created by King Amadeo a knight commander, the step higher in the order of Isabel the Catholic. Events prove Prim's wisdom, as Alberta was careful to observe, for King Amadeo was soon convinced of the unfitness of his people for even a constitutional monarchy, told them so, resigned his throne, and bade them farewell. Then came a republic marked by excesses such as even the worst monarch had not committed, among them the dreadful massacre of the members of the filibustering party on the steamer Virginia's in Cuba, which would have caused war with the United States had not the Americans been deluded into the idea that they were dealing with a sister republic. America and Switzerland had been the only nations which had recognized Spain's new form of government. Prim sought an alliance with America for he claimed that Spain should be linked with a country which would buy Spanish goods and to which Spain could send her products. France, with whom the Bourbons wished to be allied, was a competitor along Spain's own lines. During the earlier disturbances in Spain a party of Carlists were sent to the Philippine Islands, they were welcomed by the reactionary Spaniards, for devotion to King Carlos had been their characteristic ever since the days when Queen Isabel had taken the throne that in their opinion belonged to the heir in the male line. Rizal frequently makes mention of this disloyalty to the ruler of Spain on the part of those who claim to be most devoted Spaniards. Along with the stories of these troubles which Rizal heard during his school days in Manila were reports of how these exiles had established themselves in foreign cities, Bossa in Hong Kong, Regidor in London, and Tavera in Paris. At their homes in these cities they gave a warm welcome to such Filipinos as traveled abroad and they were always ready to act as guardians for Filipino students who wished to study in their cities. Many availed themselves of these opportunities and it came to be an ambition among those in the islands to get an education which they believed was better than that which Spain asked.